Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 24th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our weekly news. A new Workers' Compensation Appeals Board panel decision reverses case law by limiting lien claimants to OMFS payment limits in injury-denied cases. Here's what happened in the case of Rodriguez versus Hageman Meat Company and Zenith Insurance Company. Rodriguez claimed he was injured while lifting a 70-pound box of chicken at work. The carrier initially denied the injury. The workers' compensation judge found an injury causing 6% permanent disability with no apportionment. The workers' compensation appeals board judge also ordered the defendant to pay Kaiser's lien in full without reduction under the official medical fee schedule. Kaiser claimed an outstanding balance of about $3,000. Defendant filed a petition for reconsideration and argued that Kaiser cannot recover more than the amount set by the official medical fee schedule. The Workers' Compensation Appeals Board agreed and reversed the award to Kaiser. Previously, several writ-denied decisions have held that a medical provider is not limited to the official medical fee schedule when the injured employee's claim has been denied. This line of cases originated with Federal Mogul Corporation versus WCAB, in which the applicant self-procured treatment after the defendant's insurer did not accept the claim. However, in this case, the Workers' Comp Appeals Board pointed out that the Appeals Board panel decisions including writ-denied decisions, are not binding on other panels. More importantly, the statutory basis for the line of panel decisions has changed in the intervening years, and thus it was time to re-evaluate this issue. An official medical fee schedule now establishes maximum fees. Administrative Rule 9792C now sets forth the specific circumstances under which a medical provider may recover more than the amount under the OMFS. Under this rule, a medical provider must justify a higher fee by an explanation of extraordinary circumstances related to the unusual nature of the services rendered. Thus, lien claimants have the burden of demonstrating the reasonableness of the amounts charged if they claim more than the OMFS, which was not done in this case. Commissioner Frank Brass dissented from the opinion. He concluded that the old policy considerations still hold true today. Nothing in, in the changes to Labor Code Section 5307.1 suggests that the legislature intended to alter existing law in order to allow defendants the advantage of the OMFS when they deny claims for injuries that are later determined to be compensable. And now our fraud report. A 49-year-old woman was found guilty for her role in an elaborate $20 million healthcare fraud scheme that officials say involved Manor Medical Imaging Clinic in South Glendale and pharmacies in and around the San Gabriel Valley. This is the first case in the nation alleging an organized scheme that investigators say is on the increase around the nation. Maynard Medical Imaging employed a doctor to write prescriptions and had close relationships with pharmacies and fraudulent drug wholesale company that was used to funnel prescription drugs back to the pharmacies participating in the scheme. 
Glendale resident Norista Gregorian allegedly fraudulently used an American doctor's name and license number when she saw homeless patients at Maynard Medical Imaging Clinic in a 200 block of North Central Avenue. Gregorian reportedly only holds an Armenian medical license, yet allegedly filled out phony prescriptions which were already signed by physicians Kenneth Johnson. He was reportedly paid for allowing his name to be used for the bogus prescriptions. 47-year-old Kenneth Johnson, doctor of Ladera Heights, and 32-year-old Artok of ZPN of Tahanga were also convicted in the fraud scheme. The plot involved so-called prescription harvesting, in which the clinic and other San Gabriel Valley pharmacies allegedly rebuild government health care programs repeatedly for the same expensive medications. The clinic's operators funneled prescription drugs back to participating pharmacies and black market wholesalers where the drugs were relabeled, repackaged, and dispensed again. Huntington Pharmacy in San Marino was a primary pharmacy involved in the case. Authorities saw a huge spike in its claims to Medi-Cal, going from just $145,000 in 2009 to nearly $1.5 million in 2010. And the vast majority of claims were the result of prescriptions written by Maynard in-house doctor. Prosecutors allege that the owners of Huntington Pharmacy were receiving kickbacks and structuring cash deposits totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars into their personal and business accounts. During a three-week trial, federal prosecutors presented evidence showing how patients' files were doctored to show that they needed medication and they were treated. Employees at the clinic reportedly used stolen identities to create thousands of phony prescriptions. The investigation in this case was called Operation Psyched Out and was conducted and conducted by local, state, and federal law enforcement offices. An insurance salesman was arrested in al on allegations he stole $30,000 from a San Rafael nonprofit by fraudulently claiming an extra broker's license. 39-year-old Russell Joseph Sage of Sacramento was charged with felony theft by false pretenses. The alleged victim is Centerpoint Incorporated, which provides substance abuse rehabilitation and other services. In 2012, Sage sold the nonprofit a $500,000 workers' compensation policy. A broker's fee was included in the structure of the policy, but Sage sent Centerpoint separate invoices for a commission. Centerpoint paid Sage in two checks of $15,000 each, McAllister said. Sage was arrested in Yolo County where he was serving a jail sentence in a different insurance fraud and money laundering case. Sage surrendered his professional license last year according to the California Department of Insurance website. The website reflects a long history of disciplinary issues. And in medical news, artificial disc replacement or ADR or total disc replacement or TDR is a surgical procedure in which discs in the spinal column are replaced with artificial devices. The procedure is used to treat chronic severe low back pain and cervical pain resulting from degenerative disc disease. Artificial disc replacement has been developed 
as an alternative to spinal fusion with the goal of pain reduction or elimination while still allowing motion throughout the spine. Another possible benefit is the prevention of premature breakdown in adjacent levels of the spine, a potential risk in fusion surgeries. Two artificial discs have been approved by the FDA for use in the U.S., the charity manufactured by Deputy for use in the lumbar spine, and the ProDisc manufactured by Synthes for use in the lumbar spine and cervical spine. They are FDA approved only for one level applications. Two level disc replacement surgery is considered experimental in the United States, but has been performed in Europe for many years. Despite FDA approval, some insurance companies in the United States do not cover the surgery, still classifying it as experimental. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will not cover lumbar artificial disc replacement for patients over the age of 60 on a national basis. There are several class action lawsuits pending against the Cherit artificial disc and reports of complications with the ProDisc artificial disc implant. Now, a Carlsbad, California company, Aurora Spine Corporation, announced that it has received U.S. Food and Drug Administration 510K clearance for titanium plasma spray-coated, otherwise known as Tynano, spinal fusion implants. The manufacturer claims that Tynano implants allow for bone ingrowth due to its porous structure. However, a statement issued by the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons or recommends caution in using the new devices. The data shows that artificial disc replacement patients when compared to spinal fusion patients have a shorter recuperation period following surgery. But research also shows that spinal fusion patients show no better outcomes than patients undergoing physical therapy. While doctors have sworn to do no harm, the same doesn't seem to be true for the computer equipment or the computer networks they use to administer care. According to a new report, medical providers are succumbing to cyber attacks in droves. The study found nearly 50,000 unique malicious events from the healthcare providers they profiled. And don't worry, it gets worse. A report published in the PC Magazine found that many networked medical devices were easily taken over by hackers. These hacked devices included radiology, imaging software, video conference systems, digital video systems, call contact software, and security systems. Even devices that were meant to help shield organizations like firewalls, routers, and networked video cameras were being hijacked. Once compromised, these networks are not only vulnerable to breaches, but also available to be used for attacks and fraudulent activities launched against other networks and victims. Despite their capabilities, medical equipment and surveillance cameras aren't considered part of the security architecture and they're often overlooked by technical staff. In addition to unsecured devices and software used by hospitals is an even bigger problem, stolen medical data. Healthcare providers at all levels have extremely valuable personal data at their disposal and attackers are desperate to get their hands on that information.
You can conduct more fraud with healthcare information when you could with credit card data. An attacker can quickly monetize medical data through avenues like Medicare or prescription fraud. Last year, the estimated cost of this type of insurance and medical fraud was around $12 billion. Obviously, healthcare organizations need to get serious about their securing networks and devices even at the most basic level. And in regulatory news, the Department of Workers' Compensation began operations at a satellite to the Oxnard District Office in Santa Barbara this January. The satellite office was open to continue to service the cases previously filed in Goleta District Office, which was closed last December. Although the new satellite was initially welcomed by the community, the Department of Workers' Compensation has determined that the current office space cannot accommodate the volume of users. The size of the lobby, hearing room, and available parking is insufficient on conference days. And the crowding is negatively impacting other tenants in the facility as well. Tenant complaints have made it clear that the Department of Workers' Compensation must take immediate measures to reduce its impact on the shared facility space. Therefore, beginning on Monday, March 3rd, at all conferences that would have taken place in Santa Barbara will be rescheduled on Mondays to Oxnard. The Oxnard District Office is located approximately 38 miles to the south of Santa Barbara and has ample room. To assist applicants who have difficulty traveling to Oxnard, the Department of Workers' Compensation encourages use of court call in lieu of a personal appearance by attorneys. The Department of Workers' Compensation will also explore alternatives for unrepresented injured workers, which may include a telephone appearance option to be facilitated by Department of Workers' Compensation's information and assistance officer. The Santa Barbara satellite will continue to be used for a limited number of trials and expedited hearings held on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. There will be no hearings scheduled on Fridays, which are termed a dark day, set aside for judges to work on their decisions. The Information and Assistance Office in Santa Barbara will stay open five days a week. The Department of Workers' Compensation is actively pursuing a more spacious satellite location. The Department of Workers' Compensation has posted an order adjusting the physician services and non-physician practitioner services section of the official medical fee schedule to conform to changes made to the Medi-Cal rates database effective for services on or after February 15, 2014. Medi-Cal updates its rates file on the 15th of every month and posts it on the 16th. The Department of Workers' Compensation will be issuing an administrative director's order every month to adopt the updated Medi-Cal rates file for services effective on or after the 15th of the month. Please consult the website for the relevant Medi-Cal rates filed by date of service. And in other news, Many industries, including the workers' compensation claims process, involves communications with law firms on a daily basis. The sanctity of the privacy of communications between lawyers and their clients has always been highly protected in every state and the federal level, at least until now. 
about the list of those caught up in the global surveillance netcast by the National Security Agency and its overseas partners now includes American lawyers. A top secret document obtained by the former NSA contractor Edward Snowden shows that an American law firm was monitored while representing a foreign government in trade disputes with the United States. The disclosure offers a rare glimpse of a specific instance of particular interest because lawyers in the United States have expressed growing concern that their confidential communications could be compromised by government surveillance. In this case, the government of Indonesia had retained a firm for help in trade talks. The NSA's Australian counterpart notified the agency that it was conducting surveillance of the talks, including communications between Indonesian officials and the American law firm, and offered to share the information. The Australians told officials at NSA that information covered by attorney-client privilege may be included in the, in the intelligence gathering. The law firm was not identified, but Mayor Brown, a Chicago-based firm with a global practice, was then advising the Indonesian government on trade issues. The NSA declined to answer questions about the reported surveillance, including whether information involving the American law firm was shared with United States trade officials or negotiators. Dwayne Layton, the Mayor Brown lawyer involved in the trade talks, said he did not have any evidence that he or his firm had been under scrutiny by Australian or American intelligence agencies. But he went on to say, you would have to be an idiot not to wonder if eavesdropping would happen in this day and age. Indonesia has been embroiled in several disputes with the United States in recent years. One involves clove cigarettes, an Indonesian export. The Indonesian government has protested a United States ban on their sale, arguing that similar menthol cigarettes have not been subject to the same restrictions under American anti-smoking laws. The World Trade Organization ruled that the United States prohibition violated international trade laws and referred the case to arbitration to determine potential remedies for Indonesia. Another dispute involved Indonesia's exports of shrimp, which the United States claimed were being sold at below market prices. The Indonesian government retained Mayor Brown to help in the cases concerning cigarettes and shrimp. Both cases were underway a year ago when the Australian reported that their surveillance included an American law firm. Most attorney-client conversations do not get special protections under American law from NSA eavesdropping. Amid growing concerns about surveillance and hacking, the American Bar Association in revi has revised its ethics rules in 2012 to explicitly require lawyers to make reasonable efforts to protect confidential information from unauthorized disclosure to outsiders. Last year, the U.S. Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision rebuffed a legal challenge to a 2008 law allowing warrantless wiretapping that was brought in part by lawyers with foreign clients they believed were likely targets of NSA monitoring. The lawyers contended that the law raised risks that required them to take costly measures like traveling overseas to meet clients to protect sensitive communications. But the Supreme Court dismissed their fears as speculative. Maybe it's 
not so speculative anymore. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and drop by again next week for more news.